0: You know as well as I do that fear only exists for one purpose. To be conquered. Starfleet captains don't easily succumb to
1: fear. What will become of us? Of me? Like all fear, you eventually vanish. I'm afraid.
0: Welcome to Trekno Babble, Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and evil space clown.
1: And I'm Elizabeth, two eyes in the dark and a student of humanoid psychology.
0: Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I talk about fear. We begin with the fourth season episode of The Next Generation, Night Terrors, which aired in 1991, was written by Sherry Goodhearts and directed by Les Landau. The Enterprise investigates the starship Pertane, which had disappeared after sending a distress call weeks prior. It is discovered that the entire crew of the Pertane, save one Betazoid civilian, are dead. The Betazoid man, Hagen, may be alive, but he is virtually catatonic, repeating a few words in his mind which Troy can hear telepathically. A thorough review of the Pertain reveals that her crew murdered each other after falling victim to severe mental distress. No other discernible force can be detected except the ship's engines won't activate. The same technological issue seems to be affecting the Enterprise as well, but that isn't all. Gradually, the crew begin experiencing strange hallucinations, hearing voices becoming confused and stressed. All except for Data, of course, and Troy, who is having a recurring nightmare with the same strange words her counterpart Hagen keeps repeating in his mind. As the morale aboard the ship deteriorates, it is eventually understood that the Enterprise is stuck in a space anomaly called the Tychon's Rift but the crew's problems are stemming from a telepathic distress call from an alien ship also stuck in the rift. Only Troy's mind can process the message while the rest lose their ability to experience REM sleep. Troy and Data are able to decipher the alien message together and coordinate with the aliens to free both ships. So my first question, Elizabeth, is uh, this REM sleep deprivation thing, is it actually real? Could this kind of thing happen?
1: Uh, REM sleep deprivation is a real thing it it doesn't work exactly the way that the episode um, outlines it like this is kind of a really extreme version of what could potentially happen Um, but no REM sleep is so essential Like good sleep in general is essential for um, human psyches and bodies like that's where we that's REM sleep is what helps us Process and create memories, and like that's when our bodies go have a lot of reparative uh, things that it does while we're sleeping, and so the lack of that really can create this exhausted brain fog kind of experience if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not getting Mm. good sleep, and if you're not reaching uh, REM, which stands for rapid eye movement, which is just the the outward phenomenon that we're able to see but there's actually a very distinct change in brain activity when you go into REM sleep.
0: Interesting, so in other words, yeah, so what we're seeing in terms of these symptoms, you know, it's it, it's a kind of a fascinating horror concept, right, because it is a horrifying episode. Um, the, a number of scenes, the one that sticks in my head the most from this is when Beverly's in the morgue and She's uh, with all the corpses from the Bataan, and she's left alone for a moment, and then she turns, and suddenly they're all sitting up.
1: Go away.
0: It's such a simple directorial trick, but it's very effective, and she's—it's just like so scary. But what's interesting is that you know. The only other than the Titans rift, which is like just the, the ship is stuck in the mud. The only other thing happening on a sci-fi level is that there's a telepathic message coming in from these aliens. And yet, the so there's no like no one's actually threatening them mm-hmm. directly. And yet there's this pervasive horror and the threat that they're all going to go crazy and kill each other. <laughs> like it's awful.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, how can you trick people into being their own worst enemy, both for themselves and for each other. Um yeah, it it is really interesting, like that in addition to there being this lack of REM sleep, which is how the show kind of explains what's happening, though that's that doesn't quite line up with the science. Um, but there is this sense of just there's a threat. Something is wrong. And I I think this episode does a really good job of Showing the different things that can happen when a organism is under threat, um, you've heard about like fight and flight, right? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, those are the two most people know about. So when you're when you're faced with a threat, your autonomic nervous system rallies and kind of prepares you and gives you shots of adrenaline and lots of other hormones, just so you can deal with that threat and survive. They either you can either do that by fighting, or by fleeing. So and it, and which one you fall into is very situationally based and also just based on your own predisposition predisposition in a way, but you're mm-hmm. just going to make a split second decision based on what you think your best chances of survival are going to be. Either you're going to fight or you're going to run away. Like you're an antelope on the African Sahara yeah. and there's a lion. How do you, how do you survive that encounter?
0: Well, we definitely see that here, right? We have, uh, in the, the, the fight in 10 forward of course is the most overt example of people fighting and and looking for that enemy. But then you also have like Worf of all people um, contemplating suicide because he can't deal with the stress and he needs to escape. Right?
1: Yeah. That is one way to flee. Yeah. Um, But the Betazoid character from the Pertain that you talked about that we meet and that Troy keeps trying to talk to, and he's just basically catatonic. Right? Mm -hmm. So that is the third lesser known Uh, survival mechanism that gets kicked into most mammals so it's almost like a mercy like uh kill switch in a way you can kind of think of it it's freeze so there's fight Mm. and there's fight there's fight flight and freeze and freeze happens when you can't escape so let's again you're the antelope on the african sahara and a lion has got you a lion has you in its jaws in that moment you can't fight and you can't flee and so what your nervous system might do is actually just shut down and it's both a way to conserve energy just in case the lion gets like bored of you and dumps you on the ground for later but you're still alive it'll let you conserve energy so that you can kind of snap to you and run away if that does if you are presented with that opportunity but if not it's actually a way for you not to feel pain in the last mm. moments of your life it's actually kind of this very dark mercy that essentially in the last moments of someone of a creature's life they're not going to feel those teeth sinking into them they're in freeze and that yeah. yeah and you know that happens to humans too like um depression you can argue is a kind of freeze response where you're stuck in a situation where you can't fight your way out, you can't escape it, and your body almost just shuts down in this way to conserve energy and just try to wait it out until you can escape. And like our bodies also do that. And I just thought that was really cool in this episode to see these three very distinct ways of dealing with a threat. And none of them are none of them i think are better or worse than another i think culturally we have like moralistic judgments about people who fight versus flee versus freeze but honestly that's just the way our autonomic nervous systems are adapting to the situation we find ourselves in and our autonomic nervous system is automatic like we don't exactly get to choose which way it goes. There are things we can do in response to maybe like kick ourselves out into a different state, but like that's that's just how our bodies work, you know? And yeah. and I, I think that's really important just to say like these are all biologically based responses. And it I think it's important not to have such kind of moralistic judgment on how people deal with and, and respond to a threat.
0: Well the way the episode frames those Distinct responses, uh, I think is very positive in, in, in that case of what you're saying, because the flight response, which I think we would say our society judges as being less than that that's a typical sort of judgment on it is like, Oh, you ran away, you're a coward, right mm-hmm. thing. That's given to Worf, the the brave warrior character.
1: I am no longer a
0: warrior. I am no longer strong. What do you feel? I feel fear. The fight response is given to the idiots in Ten Forward, right? right who are shut down by Gyned in that cool scene with her with her big space gun. That was setting number one. Anyone want to see setting number two? <laughs> um, and then the the freeze response is given to the Betazord characters in Troy, right? She's headed to that point. She, she she fears, right? She's yeah. worried about ending up like Hagen.
1: In the end, I'll be like him. Just like him.
0: But it's that process of going into that catatonic state that pr- gives her the tools to become the hero of the story and save everybody, right? Mm. So the framing of those different states is played against type in terms of what we are we might socially moralize or judge them to be
1: yeah thank you for pointing that out I think you're right I think culturally like we think that fighting is the most noble appropriate response like oh like I'm gonna show you you know like I'm gonna dominate you and fight this out and in the show like that is actually portrayed as the worst option to do in this situation like no there's no one to fight but like when you have that message going through your body of just like I have to fight to stay alive, it's really hard to override that.
0: There's something about Troy's feeling of loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, when she and she and Tr- Crusher are talking about the situation that they're all in, and how Crusher's like, "Yeah, none of us can REM sleep except for you," and she she says it like, kind of in a half uh, half deprecating, half encouraging way, like. You you at least are spared this problem that we're all f- facing. So she's the worst thing she's dealing with is having these nightmares, which is not fun. But at least she's not under threat of going crazy and killing everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So she's special that way, but she's singled out for it, and it makes her feel despair because she's the only one going to that place, um, which I think is true to life. I think, I think we. As you say, or as you implied, we're conditioned against feeling like the option to freeze is one that we should take, even if it's only for part of the time until until we have the resources to deal with it in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I like that message. I hadn't thought about that that place for her in this really, and that's that's I think that's very encouraging. Yeah. Um, speaking of her dream there's, this is an interesting take on telepathy. Usually in Star Trek, you know, you hear characters or you see characters communicating telepathically and it's basically just they're talking in their heads, you know, Uh, which is fine. But I I would have to imagine that if you're actually in someone's head in a real telepathic connection, it's going to be very confusing. And, uh, you know, you're not going to have the blueprint or the dictionary to understand the way someone else's mind works and processes those things into words little or concepts even so the fact that this message which is like help us give us uh hydrogen that's the message comes across as this this poem (laughs) yeah poem in space right
1: yeah it's totally it's like how psyche communicates which which we've talked about in earlier episodes um psyche communicates using metaphor and image and I think that's a really cool concept in the show, you know, they're talking to another alien species. So it's not like this disembodied psychic force that you're communi- communing with. But it's the same concept in the way of you're, you're trying to reach another person's mind. And when it's how do you communicate meaning when you don't otherwise share a language and to use poetry like it's like poetry and mathematics like those are the fundamental building blocks of communication across all different kinds of minds and the words and the language like those those are insufficient drapings that we put over these metaphors and poetry and mathematics and feelings and so we use the words as the carriers but we always have to remember that they're tracing back to something much more fundamental.
0: In 1996, Voyager aired a very special episode during its second season called The Thaw. It was written by Joe Manoski and directed by Richard Gaddis. The Voyager happens across a planet that is recovering from the effects of a major solar flare. Although there are no life signs, the ship is hailed from the surface with an automated message outlining the premise. The aliens put themselves into hibernating stasis while the planet recovered. However, some sort of malfunction seems to have prevented the stasis chambers from opening and releasing the aliens from their hibernation. Janeway has one of the pods beamed aboard to investigate. Two of the five aliens have died in their chambers, which further analysis reveals is also a kind of virtual reality which keeps the hibernator's brains active and interactive. The crew remains in the dark about why the survivors have chosen to remain in their hibernation, especially since the EMH concludes the two dead aliens died of stress-induced heart failure caused by fear. Kim and Taurus are sent into the virtual reality via the two vacant chambers to question the aliens. The pair find themselves in a fever dream renaissance festival of some sort, occupied by darkly malicious dancers, performers, musicians, and one monochromatic clown who seems to be in charge. Oh, and one very ominous pink guillotine. This device seems to be the means by which the humanoid inhabitants are literally scared to death. It is discovered that the clown is a manifestation of the collective fears of the inhabitants, unintentionally created by the interactive program. The clown is also aware of the inhabitants' thoughts, although it takes a few minutes for him to manifest them. The clown and his fellows have developed a kind of sentience and will to survive, requiring that the humanoids remain in stasis to feed the program mural information. Harry is left in the program as a hostage while Taurus is awoken to fill Janeway in and the crew. They attempt a deception, using the EMH to distract the clown. Excuse me, you're not holding that properly. Correct positioning of the index finger is necessary for optimal dexterity. But this ends with one of the aliens being executed. Left with few options, Janeway offers to sacrifice herself for the remaining others, being the only mind left on the system. The clown agrees, impressed with his perception of her potential for his program. However, when the hostages are released, it is revealed that the Janeway inside the program is a holographic recreation designed to fool the clown. With a tap of neural information cut off, the clown himself experiences fear with the realization that he is about to cease to be. Janeway sits with him as he slowly vanishes, taunting him. Why are clowns scary?
1: (laughs) I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. (laughs) Do you find clowns scary?
0: You know... They have the, the it's the defining feature of a clown, right? Is that they have a, a face painted onto them, on their on their face, right? Mm-hmm. So the emotional state that they're casting, usually a smile, but it can be anything, right? Is that you're seeing two faces at the same time? You're seeing what is painted on, and you're seeing their actual face underneath it, which could be anything. So you have a happy face and terrifying eyes or whatever. I think that's it's it's the um, superimposition of those two things, and that. It just, it's creepy. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, that's fair. And there can be something, I think, sinister too as well for something that is supposed to be fun and jolly and like playful. And like, you know, like you think about the best kind of clown that you could ever see. And so often just to play into the complete opposite of that is like that can be Mm. really scary when something that's supposed to be, joyful and fun and bright and you know like something that will make kids, for kids. yeah for kids yeah. and to see that turn sinister like i think now that i think about it more i think that's a really good metaphor for also maybe like the loss of innocence you know because like so much as mm. when we're a kid like we think everything is sunshine lollipops and roses and <laughs> and then when we get betrayed in that way. Like it can be very devastating. And I wonder if the clown, like the the evil clown is a play on that idea of like this loss of innocence and the change of something that you thought was wonderful. And it turns out it's not.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Speaking of like, yeah, the, 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 the so the clown is only one element in this remarkably like brave, uh, set and production design for this episode, which I happen to love. I mean, it does have, like, echoes of the original series in it. You know, it's got these garish colors and these quote-unquote cheap um, values. You know, there's nothing in the background. It's just these Cirque du Soleil performers, literally. They actually have Cirque du Soleil performers. Oh, that's I brought cool. In. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the clown and these really, like, geometric set pieces, including this pink guillotine, which is just... What a concept. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um you know and it, and it has this air of artificiality to it which contributes to the horror right in in um in the TNG episode in uh Night Terrors it was a very pervasive kind of horror where you didn't quite know what was going to happen and you felt that itchiness on your skin and that like paranoia kind of creeping in Here it's this Uh, the 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 surface of what's going on is so damn threatening like a clown right it's superficially so innocent and yet the dread of you are never getting out of here you're never waking up you're never stopping you're just stuck in this garish nightmare forever is where the horror comes from and i just think it's Mm -hmm. what a choice what a wonderful choice
1: (gasps) I I have to admit that when I was re-watching this episode uh, for this podcast and we entered into the the circus or the clown's world, my first thought was, oh, it's this hokey episode. (laughs) Like, I I just was like, oh, okay, I remember this, I remember this. And then I kept watching and visually, like, it's amazing to me just how crazy, creepy they made this with such simple tools you know like there, there's no there's no special effects it's just people and camera angles yeah. um and also I just started listening to the dialogue way more deeply than, the, than what I had the first time I ever saw this episode and I was completely blown away like the concepts and, and that they're discussing and playing with in this episode are just Phenomenal. Like, this is such a good piece of theater. And I I yeah. finished the episode being like, this is why I love Star Trek. Like they do something, they do <laughs> things like this. This was amazing.
0: Would you be honest with me? Fear is the most honest of all emotions, Captain.
1: You really want this to end as much as I do, don't you?
0: Now, now, don't even think about leaving. I'm not going to let you go. Not after all this. Mira? And we make a beautiful couple, Captain. I'm not Captain Janeway. Could have fooled me. I'm afraid I did the The dialogue is really sharply written, and they got uh, Michael McKeon to play the clown, yeah, right? Who's so good? He's uh, so good. Uh, Spinal Tap, and most recently I, I would probably be Better Call Saul. He was in that for a bit of it. Um, anyway, he's it brings such the the to, to me so. The, the clown right he's in charge and he is a manifestation of fear and his outward demeanor most of the time is kind of childish in its sort of sentiments right he's always like well i need this well i need that well you can't do that i have to do this and i want this now and he like, demands what he demands immediately and you know it's like a little kid yeah. um and that choice of portrayal I think maps so well onto the nature of what fear is as an emotion. Fear is the most primitive, the most primordial
1: of biological responses.
0: The ability to recognize danger, to fight it or run away from it, that's what fear gives us. But
1: when fear holds you hostage, how do you make it let go? The two most primitive sensations that all organisms have our pleasure and pain. We seek pleasure and things that te- typically keep us alive, sex, food, things like that, we enjoy those. So we seek them out. And pain tells us to back away because we could be harmed. You know, stubbing your toe, mm-hmm. cutting your arm, all these things indicate pain so that you stop what you're doing and so that you don't hurt yourself any further. Like, pain is a warning and so on a, on a basic level like some we are pleasure-seeking creatures and pain tells us what to avoid and fear is coupled with that i think fear it kind of goes along with the pain fear tells us here's the boundaries of what you should and shouldn't do and keeps us mm-hmm. safe in that way it's trying to keep us alive you know it's like what Tubak says like fear Fear shows us the limits of our sensory experience. Like it tries to give us that warning of like, don't go there because bad things could happen.
0: Ultimately, that's how the, the, the day is saved, right? Is um, dealing with fear on its own terms. And Janeway steps back from their attempts to, um, to fight fear on their terms, to manipulate him, to uh, distract him to uh, literally, they literally can't fight him right within the virtual reality. Um, and he's got that, that guillotine there as the, um, the nuclear option every time. And she steps back and, and has her analysis of fear as a concept. And one of the really interesting thing is, I mean, obviously what you say is true, the evolutionary function of fear is to protect us and keep us safe, but human beings, uniquely as far as we know among sapient beings uh look for fear sometimes why do people enjoy dangerous sports or holiday adventures with the safety off why after all these centuries do children still ride on roller coasters fear can provide pleasure to seek fear is to seek the boundaries of one's sensory experience
1: but what does fear
0: at the end of the ride it's pleasure which is the irony right is that fear itself induces pleasure yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes when it's within our control which uh, that's another thing about the clown that I think is so telling about the nature of fear is that the clown absolutely cannot deal with not being in control of everything and everyone around him all the time. Yeah.
1: I know, when the doctor comes, he is so thrown off because he can't read the doctor's thoughts. He's like, how
0: am I supposed to negotiate if I don't know what you're thinking? I have a very trustworthy face. Yeah, the music stops, everyone else stops. That's another really cool thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but all the other characters who aren't Michael McKeon um, are like extensions of him. So the set, the other characters, everything, the lights, it all kind of exudes from his central centrality um which is the way the, the the way the episode is presenting it is that fear has become i'm going to borrow a, a turn of phrase you used when we were talking about uh, remember me from a couple weeks ago fear becomes the organizing principle of this entire reality yeah um centering itself selfishly childishly um and 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 fragilely because what ends up defeating him at the end is Janeway understanding that if fear has its own objective it is literally to cease to be Hmm. and if we are thinking about what that means for us to me that suggests that whether it's dealing with the thing causing the fear, which in the case that you the cases that you mentioned where fear is actually warning us about something that we need to be afraid of because it's going to hurt us, then the fear gives us the motivation on an emotional level to deal with the thing. And if the fear is irrational, where it's coming from a place that it's 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 not representing something that is potentially harmful to us, the fear exists for us to conquer it so that we deal with the emotion on its own terms
1: that's a really good way to put it yeah so dealing with the emotion on its own terms because you know that makes me think about one of my favorite scenes in this episode is when fear is taunting harry turning into an old man and then turning into a baby and fear basically naming what i thought of as harry's like most shameful thought you know, like, it was picking out the things that Harry was most afraid of, that he was most afraid to share, that he was most afraid was true. And I thought that was devastating. Like, just that that voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, no one actually likes you, the things that you are afraid are true. And then for fear to reflect that back at you and to say that, yeah, no, this is true and I'm going to show it to you. Like, how devastating would that be? We saw it with Harry, but I thought about if fear was doing that to me and if I was going through what Harry was experiencing, just, it, it, would, be, it would be my worst nightmare coming true and just how powerful and terrifying that can be. And it's almost like you're it, the things that we're afraid to admit, once we admit them, if we can be met with understanding and compassion, it's like we're not afraid of that anymore. Like fear keeps us almost locked within ourselves in that way. But it, I think by showing us what we're most afraid to reveal, it also shows us the way out. Like, by shining a light on that mm. is how it dissipates, you know? And, and that's working with fear on its own terms, like what you were saying. Like, what does this fear actually want? What is it trying to protect me from? And, like, looking at those things and and trying to understand fear versus trying to trick it. Like, fear, fear is intelligent, you know, and manipulative. Mm. And how do we how do we negotiate with that? Like, that's what this episode is trying to do. And I, it's just, it's fascinating.
0: The only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
1: Keep repeating.
0: The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And how about,
1: there's no place like home. There's no place like home. <laughs>
0: Try putting your heels together three times.
1: Fear. Fear fear
0: do you remember harry says it to himself when he's in the virtual reality at first because he knows that he's experiencing just uh, uh, something virtual right it's not quote unquote real and the clown and everyone else makes fun of him for it and it's it is even at the time and now it's it's a cheesy line right There's nothing to fear but fear itself it's so overused but when you break it down in terms in the terms that you just described and that we're talking about when you objectify fear, it is, like you say, shining the light on it, finding out what is what fear is demanding and figuring out how to satisfy it so that it goes away. Yeah. Because in the end, you know, the clown is his own worst enemy. Yeah. Right. The clown was wanted Janeway to enter the system because he sensed, as as she put it, that she had the power to subdue him. Just like we seek out fear, even though it represents pain, potentially, or or harm, fear sought out something that could subdue him, and in so doing, sowed the seeds for his own death. And they do kill him. I mean, he's a sapient being. That's what happens. He's like the doctor. Uh, And they decide he needs to die.
1: Another moral quandary from Janeway right there.
0: Yeah, there's, there's only one or two over the seven years <laughs> of Voyagers on the Air.
1: So the aliens that are stuck in that simulation, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine being trapped in that kind of world for, what, 20 years? They were in there for 20 years or something like that. Um, yeah. And I think that episode did a really good job portraying what it would have been like to really live under those conditions for such a long time. And you know how when Harry first shows up, he's trying to get them to be like, no, Janeway's helping us. Like, we got to get out of here. We got to do something. And they're basically like, there's nothing you can do. And you're going to realize that after a couple of months here. Like, they're very shut down. They're very defeated. It's a kind of yeah. freeze response, like what we were talking about in the previous episode. But this, I also think, incorporates um, a phenomenon that's called learned helplessness, where an organism basically is taught and therefore learns that there's nothing they can do to escape a situation. And once that has been locked in, it is very difficult to undo that kind of conditioning. You know, there's a psychologist uh, in in the last century called Siegelman, who he would lock these dogs in cages and basically electrocute them and they were locked in this cage it was very random when these electric shocks would come through and the dogs had hmm. no way of escaping and he did this so much and this is a tragic experiment by the way like we wouldn't do something like this hopefully in more like recent times but eventually the dogs just gave up. They were, they thought that there was nothing that they could do to escape those electric shocks where they wouldn't even react when the shock came through anymore. And this continued after Siegelman opened the door. Like, so these dogs would be in a cage with the door open and they wouldn't move or do anything to escape the electric shock because they had learned helplessness Uh. after repeated experiences where you can't escape you learn that you can't escape, and you think that's always going to be true, even when it's not. And it's 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 such a it's such a damaging psychological trap that people find themselves in. But it's not their fault, you know. Like that's it's really understandable when that happens. You know, it's not well. It is it's not their fault.
0: It is a relinquishment of control to fear again, because in in the in connecting what you said to what's happening in the episode, you would wonder why the three remaining aliens who are alive don't put their own heads in the guillotine, yeah. right? Just like ended already. Like they're doomed to this existence forever. Why, why not kill themselves? I mean, I know that's dark, but faced with the other prospect of this maddening existence forever because they're in hibernation, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't. And I think that what you, what you're saying shines a light as to why they don't. It's because they have been conditioned to, submit so entirely to fear that they don't even get out of the cage. The door opens, and they sit there and let themselves be shocked. Mm -hmm. Also from 1996, we continue with Deep Space Nine's Nor the Battle to the Strong from its fifth season, written by Bryce R. Parker and directed by Kim Friedman. Jake Sisko has chosen to shadow Dr. Bashir on a runabout to craft a profile for a space magazine, an early feather in his writer's cap. He muses about something more exciting than the dry jargon Bashir has to offer crossing his path, and lo, they receive a distress call from the battlefront with the Klingon Empire. Jake convinces the doctor to allow him to come along to the dangerous front. Jake's romantic visions of surgery under fire don't take long to evaporate in the face of actual triage hospital conditions—injury, death, and, to his surprise, cowardice from an ensign who shot himself in the foot to avoid combat. Off-screen, the Klingons have escalated the conflict, destroyed a relief ship, and are forcing a ground conflict for which they are clearly advantaged. Jake's fears about the approaching warriors are quickly confirmed as the power is taken out at the field hospital. Bashir volunteers to retrieve a portable generator, on foot, from the runabout, and Jake accompanies him to help. On the way, the pair are attacked. In the midst of the assault, Jake panics and flees, leaving Bashir to finish the mission on his own. Jake stumbles across a field of corpses and one nearly dead Starfleet officer, who echoes Jake's earlier disgust for that ensign at Jake's own cowardly behavior. The doctor, you left him.
1: It was a mistake.
0: That's what you call it. He manages to find his way back to the hospital after the officer dies and is relieved to find Bashir alive and having successfully retrieved the generator on his own. Jake searches for some sort of karmic justification for his actions, but he concludes simply that he is a coward and he puts down those thoughts on his pad. Finally, the Klingon warriors arrive and lay siege to the hospital. The staff do their best to evacuate themselves and the patients, but Jake finds himself trapped by the invading Klingons. In a panic, he grabs a phaser rifle and brings down the ceiling by accident. When the defiant arrives and Ben rescues his son, Bashir calls him a hero for his actions, adding to Jake's shame. He decides to share his whole experience in the article he's been writing, and Ben commends him for his honesty. So I mentioned last week, Elizabeth... That occasionally with DS9, I'm going to have to get on my little soapbox. I'm going to get it out of the way because it needs to be said, but then we can move on. Because I think this is overall a very good episode, very effective. But um, it does toe the line with being not so Star Mm -hmm. Trek-y. What do I mean by that? Um, Well, the point of the imagined future, the optimism that is built into the franchise is that among other things, technology will change in a way that makes life different, probably better. Um, And for me, what they have essentially done here is taken all of the trappings of a 20th century war um, and replaced the things with their 24th century equivalents, but in such a way that the difference in technology doesn't matter, right? It's like, Mm A phaser should have a stun setting and should have or a vaporized setting. It shouldn't be injuring you the way a bullet would. Yeah. And so you have all these, you know, you have the guy shooting himself in the foot. You shoot yourself in the foot with a phaser, what what you're fine. <laughs> like, what did you do? You either vaporized it off, which you didn't do, but even if you do, they can regrow it, they can replace it. It's like not a big deal because of the change of technology, but they don't treat it that way in the episode. They treat it as though getting shot by a phaser is just like getting shot by a bullet. <laughs> oh God, what did I do to myself? What did I do? The medical technology is essentially equivalent. You know, they're they're having to run and do things on foot. The transporters don't work, et cetera, et cetera. They've set up all these things so that the conflict is exactly as it would be as if this took place in... The Vietnam War, for example, which is this is very evocative of. I mean, that's why I think of this episode as Star Trek MASH. Which, MASH is a great show, don't get me wrong. And I think this is effective in, in its message. But I just need to put that out there and so we can move on from it.
1: No, I, I think that's a really fair point. I mean, a lot of Star Trek is trying to imagine like who we could be. And this episode, oh, I really enjoyed this episode. But it, it, it was very much like World War One. Vietnam, Korean War, like this is what this is like. This is what we're referring to. And the ensign shooting himself in his foot is taken directly from combat stories in the past century. So I I do see how it is, basically taking that conflict and putting it in space versus saying Mm -hmm. how could this be different in the future.
0: Yeah, and that's that's my 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 one my one main problem with it. But uh, enough of the negative. There's a lot of positive here. And I'll start with one of the smaller things, which is, so as Jake is going through all this, uh, Benjamin Sisko and the Defiant are on their way to to rescue them and provide uh, relief. And on the way there, Ben and Jadzia are having conversations about being parents. Um, And Jadzia, of course, has been a parent many times in other lifetimes and is able to connect with Ben on that level.
1: I wish there was something I could do. Some way, I could promise you that everything is going to be okay. But you can't. No one can.
0: Which I, I found it very moving. I mean, it, it's impressive to me that Jedzia, even though she's not a parent in this iteration of her trill life, uh, you know, she's a she's like a roughly thirty you know thirty year old uh, career gal, yeah. <laughs> right? Is what they would say in the '90s, and yet she really accesses those feelings. Uh, effectively, I think.
1: Yeah. like To me, that's a beautiful example about how emotions are timeless and like really let you time travel. Like the way that Jadzia was crying and just so emotive remembering the child that she was so afraid she wouldn't be able to save, you know, and it -hmm. was as if she was back there. And, And in a way that I think that's really what happens when you feel a really intense emotion that is connected to a past experience. Like, Emotions exist in the present moment when you're feeling them, but they're also connected to the things that happened in your past. And it's a way for you to exist in two times at once. And in that way, it's like time travel. You know, It's how can you You're really feeling what it was like to mourn that child, to be so afraid. It's the same way that smells can suddenly transport you to like your grandmother's kitchen or to this. It just evokes that memory. And for a minute, you can exist in multiple times. And how do you hold that tension? And how do you honor the experience that you're having now and the experience that you're reliving?
0: Yeah, I mean, socially, we tend not to value those emotional states in the same way you know if you're dealing with the immediate death of a loved one for example or anything that that causes you an emotional response in the moment uh we see it very differently as as happens in the episode um accessing that emotional state from memory we see it as somehow like weak I think, like, oh, you, you, already went, you already did this feeling. Why are you doing it again? Like, what's wrong with you <laughs> is, I, is kind of the social expectation.
1: Yeah, and I, and I have a lot of – I take issue with that social stance. But, again, that's why I'm becoming a therapist because I don't believe that to be true. <laughs> um, so a lot of the times when we have a really, really strong emotion, you can think of it like an iceberg – like, what is happening on the surface is the tip of the iceberg, but it's resonating so much lower. And there's a lot of different layers that are happening underneath, underneath the superficial experience. You know, I remember having a huge fallout with a friend. And in addition to dealing with the fallout of that friendship in a very contemporary adult way, part of me also felt abandoned the way a baby would feel abandoned if its mother left and like both those experiences were happening at the same time and how do you how do you honor those different levels of experiences because they're all feeding into each other it's not just oh well this is what's actually happening and this isn't no like there's a lot of different layers of reality that happen and and i also think that you know, when someone becomes quote unquote triggered, um, and I don't Mm want to go into exactly what that means right now, but I think colloquially like something sets us off. One way you can think about what being triggered means is that you revert back to an earlier, younger emotional state. And so Mm -hmm. when we're triggered, we we kind of time travel again in that way we'll suddenly be 14 or seven or three or however old we're going to be because something that has triggered us is is invoking an experience we had at that age and we're still kind of frozen like that Hmm. experience and that emotional processing hasn't finished it still lives within us and it's going to be invoked when something similar happens It was hundreds of years ago and I can still remember how helpless I felt. And so when people are triggered, they might be an adult, they might be in their 30s, 40s, 80s. They could be way into their life and all of a sudden they're going to be emotionally five years old. You know, and it's because whatever has triggered them has evoked that experience which is still living inside of them and it's asking to be worked through.
0: We tend to put a really thick dividing line between childhood and adulthood, especially um, when we think about emotional development. And I I think you'd agree that there is something of a divide just biologically between being a child and being an adult in terms of the way our brains are formed. At a certain point, they do stop growing in the same way. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think it's relevant here, you know, we're, we're dealing with Jake um, entering adulthood, right? He's 18 in this episode, and he is given the respect of an autonomous adult to go into the situation that he probably would not, you know, almost certainly would not be allowed to go into if he were any younger. Yeah. And it's, it's it's that it's that crossing of that threshold and then of course his emotional response. at first he, he's incredibly excited about the prospect of something exciting and something not only exciting but meaningful that he can get down into his story that he can um, mine for its dramatic potential because it and, and, and as he is going on through the story, what the thing that keeps him that he keeps going back to, as he's t- attempt, uh, attempted to break down in the face of this horrifying uh, experience is assigning meaning to the events happening that, oh, well, I, you know, he, he comes across that soldier um, after he runs away from Bashir when they're supposed to retrieve the generator. And he says to himself, he says out loud, actually.
1: Maybe I ran for a reason, so I could find you and, and save your life. And now you think bringing me back is going to make everything all right. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry, kid. (coughs) Life
0: doesn't work like that. It's not until he understands that that's not how it works that he finally breaks down and and loses it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really... That whole scene is really, really hard. Because I can understand that, you know? Like, we... We want things to make sense, to have inherent meaning, like when when random, seemingly random events devastate us, you know, like someone you love just dying in a car crash and there's no reason why it happened. Like that's so hard for us as people to wrap our heads around because we want things to make sense. We want them to have meaning. We don't want to live in a chaotic, random, meaningless universe, you know. And here Jake is kind of being faced with a part of the universe that is random and chaotic and meaningless. And how do you reconcile that? You know, I think it's something we're all faced with at one point in our life or another. And we all have to make our own answer to that. Um, but yeah, and, and to see him break down in the cave is, is just so hard and so tragic and cathartic. And for me, it was really hard to see Jake push away Bashir. Bashir clearly was like something's going on, but Jake, in his shame, just he didn't want anyone to see him. He didn't want anyone to know the truth. He was so ashamed of his experience and his naivete, and so he isolated himself and just broke down and cried in the cave. And but I love how that's balanced by how the episode ends. So in the cave, he's alone. He is not letting anyone be there with him or comfort him or witness him. But by writing his story and then sharing it with the magazine and therefore his father, suddenly those things which he felt so shameful about, those were accepted and understood and empathized with. And just the the difference in in those experiences of isolating yourself and not sharing. You're suffering and and trying to be alone in that and to carry it and process it all by yourself versus allowing yourself to be seen and witnessed in that. Like, Those are two widely different experiences, and I don't feel like people give themselves the the last one very often. I think a lot of people Mm. just keep it inside. They're like, no, I can never tell anybody about this. But by telling people is where you is where you can find support. That's where you can be held. Like we all need to be seen and held and supported throughout our lives, you know. And I thought this was a really wonderful arc, just to see Jake try one way, and then ultimately get to the other way.
0: Hey, Trekno Babblers! We hope you're enjoying the show. We wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media.
1: Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at TrechnoPsychopod. You can also find us on Facebook at Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at TrechnoPsychopod at gmail.com.
0: And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at TrechnoPsychopod.com where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. What Cisco tells him at the end is that, you know, Jake is afraid throughout the episode. Not only is he afraid of the situation, but he's afraid of people knowing how afraid he is and how his fear has motivated his actions, and yet when he comes clean so to speak when he's honest ben tells him that anyone has been in who's been in many situations like the one you were in today hardened soldiers even can relate to what you're talking about this is so real
1: everyone can see themselves in this like here you have touched on an experience everybody has you know it's not you're not alone in this and you don't need to be ashamed about it this is this is what it means to be in battle in war to be afraid
0: yeah, it's um, a, a sign of the maturity that is sort of setting up our, our premise here with, with where Jake is in his life. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, last week about in the Voyager episode memorial about the romanticization of war and, and battle and how uh, dangerous it can be to leave out the ugly parts. And I do feel like something similar is happening here where Jake has this idea that one might have if, if one is a young person exposed to movies, video games, books about war and has never been through it where it can f- seem very heroic and noble and and fun and exciting. Um, but it's terrifying and, and nauseating and crushing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's... He definitely goes through an initiation in this episode, like moving from childhood to adulthood. Like you see, you know, we're, we're talking about fear in this episode, and Jake starts, starts off with no fear. He has no fear yeah. going into the front lines. So not being afraid is not always a good thing, you know? Like this is not an hmm. example of like, yes, having no fear about this was a, was a healthy emotional stance and he learns that very quickly. Um, but I also one one thread in this episode that I really appreciated was just seeing you know Jake is transitioning from being an, a from being a child to becoming more of a young adult and that is the that's Jake's journey. But we also see Ben's journey. You know, mm. and he we, he talks about you always want to protect your children. And how hard that is when you can't and so they're both kind of going through this transition about coming into adulthood and you see it both from the child's perspective and from the parent's perspective and how there's grief on both sides but you also have to you both have to pass through it you know like if a a parent never lets their child grow up like you know none of it. like we've seen that happen with people in our lives like you need to let your children go out into the world as hard as that is. I
0: agree. You know, there's there's different levels of fear going on here, um, which I, I really appreciate the way the episode is constructed in that way, that there's the obvious fear of, of death and of pain um, coming from this battle situation, but the one, th- the, th- the thing that seems to haunt Jake in particular the most is the fear that He's going to be defined by his worst behavior, by the worst thing he does, Yeah. which um, he he has a conversation with Bashir about what's going to happen to the ensign who shot himself in the foot. And Bashir's like, he's going to be court-martialed. He's going to be drummed out of Starfleet. His career's ruined. He's going to be publicly shamed, it seems. Now, I don't love that again, as a depiction of the optimistic Roddenberry future. I don't love the idea that <laughs> that's how it would actually go, but we'll set that aside and treat this as a military thing. You know, what that what that opens up for Jake is the idea that here was his chance to make meaning, like we were talking about, and the meaning he made for himself was, oh, I'm a coward. That's who I am. That's all I am. And that's all anyone's going to remember me as.
1: It's, it's heartbreaking that we punish people who need help, you know? And we do, that, we do that with a lot of different populations, not just soldiers who wound themselves to get out of battle. But we see people who have done something that for whatever reason we don't agree with, and instead of giving them support and understanding and helping them recover, we punish them. And that's a whole soapbox that I will get on another time. But it's, it is sad, you know, and it's, it's, I think everybody has done something in their life, which we deeply regret and have a lot of shame about, and is the worst thing that we've ever done. And how how scary that is to be defined by the worst thing you've ever done like in some cases people who are in the criminal justice system are defined by the worst thing they've ever done and all other parts of their identity are just erased you know and and then those of us who don't live in the who don't exist within the criminal justice system we still have done things but we are not we're not defined by them we're not completely judged by them and that tension is is hard you know just to there but for the grace of god go i is kind of how i think it goes again we're all we're all trying to make meaning and there are stories that we tell ourselves and the soldier who shot himself in his in the foot tells himself that he's a coward he, like he is he places such negative shameful meaning on what he's done and that's one story that he could tell himself i'm a coward i'm a terrible person i've done this reprehensible thing i don't i don't deserve anybody's compassion or sympathy and i'm i'm awful that's one story another story could be i was really scared and i can understand why i i went into flight in that situation and I did things that I regret but I can understand what happened and I have I can have compassion for myself in a terrifying situation that is also a story that he could tell himself and and who's to say which one is quote-unquote true
0: well and that's why it's a good thing that we have the ending to the episode that we have and that we see that There's some level of empathy, compassion, and relatability in conveying those vulnerabilities because sometimes, maybe more often than we might suspect, more often than we might fear, our stories are are stories that people uh, recognize in themselves. Anyone who's
1: been in battle would recognize himself in this. Most of us wouldn't care to admit it. It takes courage to look inside yourself, and even more courage to write it for other people to see. I am proud of you, son.
0: Wrap up with a brief look at Lower Decks. Mining the Minds' Minds was written by Brian D. Bradley, directed by Phil Mark Sagadraka, and aired just earlier this year. The Cerritos and another California class, the Carlsbad, have been assigned to clean up the mess left after one of the premium class ship's recent missions. There is a planet on which some glowing green psychic minds create fantasy hallucinations which, if touched, turn you to stone. The Lower Deckers from the Cerritos find themselves in resentful competition with those from the Carlsbad as they perform their cleanup duty. Meanwhile, Tendi is mentored officially by Dr. Miglimo and unofficially by Dr. Ta'ana for her promotion to science officer. Captain Freeman and the captain of the Carlsbad are tasked with finalizing the truce between the natives of the planet and the Federation output scientists, but they too prove too competitive to complete this easy mission. McGlimo assigns Tendi to serve as Freeman's science liaison and make her voice heard. The competition on the planet leads to some hijinks which result in the minds reading and projecting the Lower Deckers nightmares instead of their fantasies. The Lower Deckers all hunkered down in a cave to hide, comms are blocked, of course, where they learn that the Cerritos crew are idolized by other support ship crews and the competition that ensued with the Carlsbad was about living up to this image. The sextet investigate further and discover that the mines are collecting classified information of all types, with the purported conflict actually being a ruse. Tendi asserts herself to the captains, and altogether the lower deckers prove their mettle and save the day. This is your first lower decks experience, isn't it?
1: It is my first lower decks experience, um... My partner is finishing Voyager right now. And once he is done with that, we're going to start watching Lower Decks. He's very particular about the order in which he watches things.
0: <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> right. I respect that. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't want to spend too much time here. We, we, we did a lot on the other three episodes and it is a, you know, it's a comedy and I, I, I really like Lower Decks. We, we have mentioned a couple times, times uh, about our different views of discovery uh, I I have some problems with it. I think you like it more than me. That's okay. But I do really love lower decks as a new um, uh, n- a new trek uh, exemplar, and I, and I I hope you learn to love it too as you as you get to know it. Um, one of the interesting things for me that jumped out here in terms of our our theme this week is that so at first these minds are um, projecting the, the people's fantasies, right? The things that they want. Yeah. And when faced with that, uh, other people seeing what those fantasies are, you know, Leah Brahms and like romantic things and being promoted, whoever people's particular fantasies are, it's embarrassing. They make fun of each other. They blush. They're like, I don't want you to see this Yeah. Is that your fantasy?
1: No, we're... No, go find Leah Brahms. Shut up.
0: Ooh, somebody's
1: blushing. Ooh, I think she is. I'm detecting an elevated heart rate. Stop looking at my heart rate. Okay, we have to ignore these totally inaccurate fantasies at all costs. Come and look at the war core with me and Leah. Uh,
0: and yet, when confronted with what are supposed to be their, like, deep-seated fears, they're fine. I mean, they're in danger because these things are dangerous. Like, you know, Borg snakes, that's dangerous. <laughs> but... um they aren't ashamed of those things in front of each other. And I thought that was weird. I mean, not weird in like it's wrong. I think that's exactly how people are. But it's weird when you break it down that way. Like, why are the things that we view positively in our dreams and imagination something that we we eschew, but our nightmares are something that we're perfectly comfortable sharing in this way?
1: Yeah, that is an interesting perspective that like the people's fantasies are used as a way to like other them like oh you like that ha 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 but then when we see what everyone's afraid of it then there's some kind of like empathetic understanding of like yes i would be afraid of a borg snake too and that is very interesting that that is just treated in such a different way why can't we also look at what people's fantasies are and be like oh yeah i could see like i could want that too like i i was again this is my first lower decks episode and I was watching these people's fantasies, I'm like, this is what most Star Trek fans would think about, because, like, especially the <laughs> Ensign, you're the only person who could help save us against the Borg. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally, yeah. there's an episode like that at least in every other series, you know? Right. It's like, you got to be the hero. Like, we all want that. that. We all have the fantasy of being the hero. Why make fun of one person just because you can see that all of a sudden?
0: Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of Lower Deck's defining features is that it it leans into the tropes lovingly and picks them apart. So that's that. That's you'll you'll enjoy uh, going through those other, other uh, episodes. Uh, <gasps> Mariner, you might want to go back to therapy. There's something about like if you're having a conversation, what even if it's with a close friend. I don't think we're culturally conditioned to like tell our friends about our fantasies, like. God, I really wish I had a different job. God, I really wish uh, I could sleep with this person. You know, God, I really wish uh, this person weren't around, didn't live in my city, whatever. <laughs> like, it's like there's something about wanting and like being vulnerable to that desire that we're more afraid of than the things that we are, quote unquote, afraid of.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah. Like, I think we're afraid of being vulnerable and being hurt and being judged and rejected in the things that we want and the things that we long for. And that's, that's hard when you feel like the things that make you most you are potentially something that could separate you from other people. That's, that's a, re- that's, that's you between a rock and a hard place when you feel that way. Yeah. That
0: connection. Between shame and fear, that we see in the lower decks episode, uh, resonates with all the other episodes this week that we talked about this week. The shame that Jake has, uh, stemming from his his fears about what the what it means for him, um, as a, as a person, as a writer, as an adult, to have faced his fears the way he did or didn't. Uh, the, the the different things that we see that clown taunt uh, Harry and Balana about I mean you mentioned uh, Harry being taunted about his fears about being old and being young being babied but also growing up too fast uh, but he also taunts Balana about her her mixed heritage and the shame that she carries around you know that's a shame is a a pretty precise trigger um, when you want to make someone feel uneasy and and, and and afraid is to go for that place where you, are trying to hide something. You're like me. A little of this and a little of that. <laughs> My what a temper. That's from your mother's side, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think about in um the TNG episode, like the shame that Worf has for not being a warrior. Yeah. You know, like fear fear and shame, they tend to be buddies. You know, like they'll accompany each mm-hmm. other a lot. And I can understand that from the sense of shame what we're shame is the sense of I am bad, that there's something inherently intrinsically bad about me, and that that threatens the connection that I have with others. And humans, we're, we're biologically wired to be with other people, we are a social species. And tens of thousands of years ago, to be exiled from your tribe or your village meant certain death. Like if you were not in a group, like your chances of survival plummeted significantly. And so when we feel threatened at losing that social connection, like it has this life or death kind of twinge to it because it's rooted in that evolutionary biological function of being together is the best means of your survival. And so threats to our social connections are really like psychologically incredibly powerful and important. Mm-hmm. And shame Shame is one of those things that we think, if anyone finds this out about me, I'm gonna be alone, I will be rejected. And it's, it's this primal fear that we don't want. We want to be part of community. And anything that threatens that, we're scared of, including if those are the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves that we don't want anyone to see.
0: I mean, as we talked about with the thaw, fear exists to be conquered in one way or another, and it's about shining that light in those dark corners.
1: Yeah, like, no, this doesn't threaten your connection. You know, the thing that you're afraid about, the thing that you are afraid of happening when that doesn't happen, it's healing, it's a relief. You know, it's like, oh, maybe I don't need to be afraid of this anymore, it's conquered.
0: Why does he do it? (laughs) We're his canvas, his blocks of marble. With us, he practices his ghastly art.
1: Fear, in a way, we experience it personally, but it doesn't belong to any single person. It's this collective experience and sensation and emotion that we all can touch, and we experience it in our own way but fear in a way does exist outside of us. And I think about how fear, if there wasn't a human being or another creature to experience fear, it just exists as a possibility, but it's never actually manifested. And I, I think about that with fear, with anger, with rage, with these archetypal experiences and patterns that we can just feel coursing through us sometimes. Like we, in a way, we are the way that these forces of nature are manifested in the world. They manifest through us. And like that line, I just think is a really creepy, beautiful way of saying how our human existence is the canvas for all these cosmic elemental forces to be worked out and to be experienced and to be explored.
0: Well, in allowing oneself to be the canvas or the block of marble, again, we are talking about fear being in control, the emotion being in control of of you, um, being the artist, being the creator. Yeah. And I think one thing that could get lost in the way these episodes are are laid out, you know, fear exists to be conquered, but not necessarily to disappear because that is profoundly unrealistic. Yeah. Right. We, we have fear. We're always going to have fear. It's a part of us. It's a part. It's always been a part of the human condition. Even in the Star Trek future, we, we have fear and that's that's what Janeway says is she doesn't say she doesn't have fear she says she's learned to respect it but she doesn't let it she doesn't succumb to it and that to me is is the lesson we ought to try to take is have the fear live with it but don't let it be in control
1: Absolutely. Like, don't let it drive the bus. It is a passenger on your bus. You can hear what it has to say, but don't let it drive. These psychic forces of nature, which we experience as really powerful emotions, feeling states, in a way, these are psychic forces which we have personified. You know, um there's an argument to say that the Greek gods and like the Roman pantheon, and especially like these polytheistic, um, religious cosmologies, all Mm -hmm. those different gods are personifications of psychic forces, which we experience. Like there, there's an argument that's been made by Carl Jung, by James Hollis, by a lot of Jungian and imaginal and archetypal psychologists who say, the, it's not that the gods exist outside of us it's actually that all these different gods these forces of nature exist within us and how do we communicate with them how do we understand them how do we personify them so we can understand and experience them as one of many that exist within us you know again you have a busload of people it's not just you in there and how do you how do you manage all those? powerful often conflicting elements within yourself
0: And one of the ways is by taking control of the narrative right um, that's the way Jake for example, processes his his feeling in the end is to take pen to paper yeah and and essentially turn his journal, Uh, about his emotional experience into a story that captures the experience. And in so doing, it's, again, a way of objectifying fear. I keep turning it over in my head.
1: And I keep trying to make sense of it all, to justify what I did. But when it comes down to it, there's only one explanation.
0: I'm a coward. The Battle of Agilon Prime will probably
1: be remembered as a pointless skirmish, but I'll always remember it as something more. As a place I learned that the line between courage and cowardice is a lot thinner
0: than most people believe. Acknowledging its personification and putting it in a place that you can look at it, put it on the shelf, put it in the book, um, and put it away <laughs> until uh, until you're ready to deal with
1: it. Yeah, it creates a distance between you and fear. It creates a separation so that you're not completely surrounded by it or overtaken by it. You can see here's me and here's fear and there's a gap. And like growing that gap is what allows you to have more of a relationship with fear versus being overtaken by it. I, it's a really powerful thing what Jake does by by writing down his story and sharing it there's actually um, a, a therapeutic modality called narrative therapy where you you work with someone on understanding how they tell their story, how do they tell you about who they are, about what's happened to them, what meaning they've made from their story, and then you work on changing that story a little bit, like wh- what's another angle that you could consider this relationship or this experience from? and. By changing the story that you tell yourself, you can often find your way out of really problematic relational cycles, and and you can you can make a different story for yourself. Cliche
0: as it might be, Elizabeth, I do think the sentiment: the only thing to fear is fear itself is still apt, and despite the hokiness, despite the cheesiness, what I discovered this week is that when you can put fear in its place, set it next to you on the bus, and tell it to be quiet when you need it to be quiet, uh, it's a welcome passenger on the ride.
1: I agree with that, and would add that fear, you want to hear what fear has to say, It usually has bad ideas about how to accomplish its goals, but yeah, what does fear have to say? What is it trying to tell you? What is it trying to protect you from? Learn to trust it, but also learn, don't let it make the decisions for you.
0: Very well said. Uh, Thank you, as always, for your incredible insights. Thank Thank you for having this discussion with me. Thank you for facing your fears with me next week we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite sex planet, Ryza and the psychological implications of that Uh, thank you Elizabeth, thank you to our patrons and listeners and we will see you next
1: week see you next week